There's a common saying in our culture that goes like this. You may have won the battle, but you haven't won the war. You've heard that, right? People say that it means that you've won a significant victory somewhere along the line, but there's still a larger war to be fought. Therefore, there's not much time. You can celebrate for a moment, but you've got to turn your attention immediately to, to the bigger picture, to the bigger battle going on. There's more to do. Well, that's where we are in the story of Esther, which we've been preaching uh, most of this summer. In the last chapter, if you were with us last week, Esther won a significant victory. <laughs> she saved her life and the life of Mordecai from their enemy, Haman. If you remember, for the first time, Esther revealed to the king her Jewish identity, and she revealed that Haman, the king's right-hand man, had orchestrated this evil plot to exterminate all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire on one day, including, by the way, Esther and Mordecai. And so with this knowledge, the king was so enraged that Haman would seek to harm his own queen that in a stunning reversal, uh, he orders Haman to be hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And he turns over Haman's position and his property in the kingdom to Mordecai. And therefore, Mordecai is now the king's right-hand man, the second most powerful in the whole kingdom. It's a stunning reversal. This is a tremendous victory. Haman is dead, and Esther and Mordecai are saved. And in fact, they have more power uh, than they've ever had in this empire. But they have not yet won the war. Because if you know the story... There still remains this edict of death for everyone else in the empire, for all the Jews in the empire. Haman is dead, but this edict is still very much alive. Haman has been hanged, but the edict still hangs over the head of every Jew, every man, every woman, every child. It gives the entire empire permission to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate them, all on the 13th day of the 12th month. And take their property. The purge is still on. So they've won a battle, yes, but they have not yet won the war. So now they have to go fight the war. Now they have to go and save not just themselves, but save all their people from death and destruction if they can. Today, friends, we're going to witness the war. We're going to read about it. We're going to see how the war is won, and we're going to reflect upon the war that every one of us in this room is fighting. That is the greater war against sin and against death. Now, if you, if you don't think you're fighting a war against death, I invite you to consider the billions and billions and billions of dollars that we collectively spend on medicine, on health care, on charities, on exercise and diets and cosmetics and plastic surgery and all the latest fads so we can stay young, so we can stay alive for as long as possible. The fact that you're wearing masks right now means we are fighting against death. See, we all know that death is evil. We all know that death is inevitable, and we are locked in a battle with it every day. If it came up to our consciousness, we can push it away. But we are locked in a battle with death. Every hour of every day. First Corinthians fifteen twenty six says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's our greatest and our last enemy. Can anyone actually win this war? If so, who? And if so, how? And if so, isn't this the greatest news the world has ever heard? That death itself can be defeated. 
That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to read from Esther chapter 8 and 9, some selections from it. It's long, so dig in. Uh, We're going to see how the war is fought and won. Would you stand to your feet for the scripture lesson? Our reading begins in Esther chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and that I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Hahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? request, It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Ammon be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Ammon were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. 
but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, I pray for those uh, who hear, that you would give them soft hearts. And I pray for me as I speak, Lord, that my speech and my message would not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our, fi- our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You be seated. I want you to see two things in this passage this morning. Number one, a decree that cannot be revoked. Number two, a relief that cannot be rivaled. So number one, a, de- a decree that cannot be revoked. And number two, a relief that cannot be rivaled. First of all, let's talk about a decree that cannot be revoked. And actually, what I want you to see in this passage is that there are actually two decrees that are irrevocable in this passage. The first belongs to King Ahasuerus, a.k.a. King Xerxes I of Persia. So think about it. If if Esther is going to save her people from death, then the logical thing to do is to simply get the king to revoke the original decree, right? That makes sense. The original decree of death against the Jews that Haman wrote and sealed with the king's ring. Just get him to revoke it. That's what Esther has in mind in verse 3 when she again risks her life to appear before the king. And she falls down before him in desperation. She is weeping. She's pleading with him. She says, King, if you really love me, then send out an order that will revoke the decree devised by Haman in every province. For I cannot bear it if this decree is carried out and my people are destroyed. It's a logical ask, right? Let's just revoke it. But the king says in verse 8, there's just one problem. A decree that is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked, ever. You see, the law of Persia was that a king's word is final because his authority is absolute. He's like a god. So no one, no one, not even the king himself can change or alter the king's decrees. Why? Because to do so would question the king's wisdom and justice. And we can't do that. We can't allow that to happen. So the only option in this scenario is to issue a counter decree, a response to the first decree, because the first one cannot be revoked. And that means the decree of death remains for all the Jews. Now, brothers and sisters, what I want to put before you today is is a hard truth, which is that you and I are also living under a decree of death. But it is not an unjust decree from a foolish king like Xerxes. No. Ours is a just decree from the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only wise God. Now, what am I talking about? Well, in the beginning, God issued a decree uh, to us through our representative Adam. If you remember in Genesis, he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall what? Surely die. It's a decree of death. 
And sure enough, Adam ate of that tree, and true to his word, on that day, Adam died. Spiritually, right away, immediately, physically, he's going to die later. And brothers and sisters, we died with him. That's what the scriptures say. And now we are subject to sin and misery and death. Because we rebelled against God, and because God's decree cannot be revoked without calling into question his own wisdom and justice. One commentator I read this week says it like this. Just as Xerxes, king of Persia, could not simply rescind the first decree of death, God, king of the universe, cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. You might be thinking, well, why not? (laughs) He's God, right? He can do anything. If God is a loving God, why can't he simply forgive? Why can't he simply revoke the decree of death? Brothers and sisters, because he is a God of mercy, yes. But he is also a God of justice. And he cannot be merciful at the expense of his justice, or he ceases to be God. There was this incredibly moving scene that I remember from June of 2015. It was two days after Dylan Roof, driven by racism and violence and hatred, entered in and he murdered nine people at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And two days later, he was having his initial hearing. And I still remember this. The family members of those who were killed stood and they addressed Roof. And to our, my everlasting astonishment, they publicly forgave him for what he did. Do you remember this? So powerful. Now I want you to imagine with me that the judge, upon hearing these words of forgiveness decided to let Ruth go free and not be held accountable for his actions. Let me ask you, would that be loving? Would that be justice? Of course not. Of course not. In the same way, friends, we are guilty of crimes against God, against the God for whom we were made. And it would not be loving or just for him to simply revoke the decree of death that we deserve. It would be offense to his justice. I know these are hard words, but friends, in order to be a Christian, you're going to have to grapple with this death sentence. You're going to have to come to grips with it. You're going to have to accept ownership of it. That it is we who have turned from God. It is we who have brought death upon ourselves. But friends, this isn't the only decree that cannot be revoked in this passage. There's another one, but this one is a little more hidden. We're going to have to do a little homework. Because notice on two occasions, in verse 3 and in verse 5, the author refers to Haman as an Agagite. Now, this might, might seem like an irrelevant detail, but biblical authors aren't in the habit of placing in irrelevant details, right? And in this case, this one is far from irrelevant. So what's going on here? Well, an Agagite is a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. There's a lot of of tough words here. Bear with me. The Amalekites were the first and the fiercest enemies of the nation of Israel. If you read back in the story, they were the first nation to attack Israel when she had just come out of slavery in Egypt, as she was en route to the Promised Land. The Amalekites were the first people to come out and try to hurt them and try to attack them right there. And and the manner of their warfare was to pick off the most vulnerable, the ones who traveled at the back of the caravan. This is the weak, the sick, women, and children. 
the Amalekites were cruel terrorists. And therefore, God made a decree. Because of this, in Exodus 17, he made a decree that he would bring justice upon the evil of the Amalekites. The verse says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven as an act of justice. The Lord repeats this promise in Deuteronomy 25, and then the Lord seeks to carry out this promise under Israel's first king, King Saul. This is in 1 Samuel 15. But if you read the story, Saul fails to utterly destroy them as God's justice required. And instead, he spared the Amalekites' king. Guess who? King Agag. He spared him and he spared some of the best animals, which was in direct disobedience to God, and it cost Saul his kingship. So when the author throws in that little hint that Haman was an Agagite, what he's saying is, we are only in this mess because Saul spared Agag so many years before. And therefore, Agag had sons, and their sons had sons, all the way till Haman, the Agagite, who continued the evils of the Amalekites against God's people. He's trying to explain what's going on, but he's also telling you that God has not forgotten his decree against the Amalekites. It, too, cannot be revoked. And interestingly, what is about to play out through Esther and Mordecai is the fulfillment of a promise of justice made a long time ago. See, this is another twist in the story. It's not just the Jews who are under a decree of death that cannot be revoked. In a deeper sense, Haman and his people, anyone that would seek to harm God's people are under this decree. And God's decree will win in the end. What does this mean for you and I? The Amalekites are not our enemies. What this means for you and I is that we too are contending with an ancient enemy. One that's been around a long time that has continued to plague us generation after generation. Not the Amalekites, but the evil one himself. The one who tempted us in the very beginning. The one who led us to our deadly fall. And friends, even today, he prowls around like a, like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Even today, he seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy us. But friends, God has decreed that he will one day wipe out the memory of this, this evil enemy from the face of the earth. See, God issued a decree against this enemy too. He promised to crush the serpent's head. And to rescue us from death. Do so you get it? This is the drama that's being played out before us in this passage. There are two decrees contending for the mastery. That is God's decree of death because of our sins, and God's decree to destroy the evil one and to rescue us from death. That's the drama. But because of this, we have hope. Because of the second decree that cannot be revoked. So, there's a decree that cannot be revoked. And lastly, secondly, there's a relief that cannot be rivaled. Notice that everything changes in this passage, in this story, when Esther once again appears before the king as an advocate on behalf of her people. Everything hinges on the advocate. But friends, since the decree could not be revoked, the king allows Esther and Mordecai to write a counter-decree in his name. 
sealed with his ring, and sent out to the whole empire, which allows for the Jews to defend themselves from anyone who might attack them, even women and children, and to plunder their goods. It's an eye for an eye. Whatever harm you seek to bring us, we are allowed to bring back on you. Now, I know this, this, this is tough for our modern sensibilities, right? This, this is troubling, especially the women and children part. Really? That's the decree? But surely, friends, this counter-decree is meant to be a deterrent. It's meant to say to the entire empire, don't do it. Or we can't revoke the first one, but what I'm telling you, don't do it. Don't attack the Jews, or they are, they are now allowed legally to do the same back to you. That was what was the intent of it. But apparently it didn't fully work. Because the text tells us that when the day came, 75,000 people throughout all the provinces still took up arms and sought to destroy their Jewish neighbors, including the ten sons of Haman, the Agagite. See, so strong was their hatred for God's people, so thirsty they were for violence. They ignored the counter-decree and they sought to carry out the original decree. But brothers and sisters, they were not successful. Because of the counter-decree, God gave victory to the Jewish people throughout the whole empire. On the day of the decree, the 13th of Adar, 500 men were killed. And the 10 sons of Ammon hanged on the gallows just like their father. And that evening, the king and queen were talking about the casualties. And the king asked if Esther needs anything else. And she says, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. Let's extend the counter-decree one more day to the 14th day of Adar as well. Now, this is troubling, too. (laughs) Why does she do this? Is Esther now being vindictive? Does she turn out in the end to be just as drunk on power and just as violent as the Persians? Perhaps. Some commentators think so, because the author never reveals her motivation. But you've got to remember the Jewish people are only entitled to self-defense. They are not allowed to go on the offensive. They are not motivated by greed, by taking their neighbor's stuff. You hear the refrain, the author keeps saying, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So perhaps Esther simply got intel. There's going to be another attack on the next day. And so she asked for an extension of the decree. Either way, A second day of warfare commences and 300 men are killed in the capital alone, which brings the total in the entire province to 75,000 people who attacked the Jews and met their demise. Brothers and sisters, this is war. This is the great battle. It's incredibly violent and it's intense. But through all of it, God is keeping his promises to rescue his people from evil. Through all of it, he is keeping his promise to give them justice on the Amalekites for bringing it upon Haman, the Agagite, and all those who followed in his violent ways. Run sisters, he's given his people relief from their enemies. Now, what do we do with this? How do we translate it to our times in our situation? Well, if you trace the story forward, you're going to see that everything hinges, everything changes for us too when an advocate appears on our behalf. Not Esther, but Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
See, for us too, everything hinges on our advocate. And because of the advocate, the king allows a counter decree to the decree of death that hangs over us. And friends, Jesus Christ is that counter decree. The decree of death cannot be revoked, but Jesus is God's counter decree of life to all who believe. Jesus Christ came to wage war on our behalf against our enemies, but not the Amalekites, not the Romans, not any other human oppressors. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This may make us uncomfortable, but 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to wage war. But he wages war very differently. He wages war by letting the decree of death that was meant for us, that we deserved, to fall upon him. Friends, if you want to know exactly what our sins deserved, all you have to do is look at the cross. To look at Jesus on the cross, it was violent, it was bloody, it was intense, but it was justice. It was him taking our decree of death upon himself. And then what appeared to be an overwhelming victory for evil and a humiliating defeat for Jesus turned out to be the exact opposite because Jesus rose again from the dead. It turns out the decree of death only worked on sinners and death could not hold the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Truly, friends, Jesus, our advocate, has won the war to end all wars, the true war, the spiritual war. He has given us victory even over death so that death is now but our entrance into glory, into the Father's very presence. The last verse we read, Esther 9, 16, concludes by saying that on that day, the Jews in Persia got relief from the enemies. And what a relief it was, right? This edict hung over their heads for months and months and months, and it was totally reversed. Imagine the relief they must have felt. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to imagine it. Because on Resurrection Day, we got relief from our enemies. Relief from guilt? You bet. Because Jesus' counter-decree is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we get relief from shame? Yes. Because Jesus' counter-decree over you is that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. Do we get relief from death? Yes, we do. Because Jesus' counter-decree says that the death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an organization founded in 1992 called the Innocence Project. You guys heard of this? The mission of the Innocence Project is to exonerate the wrongly convicted through DNA evidence. To go into cases where DNA evidence wasn't available or wasn't used and seek the truth. They focus especially on cases where the convicted have been sentenced to death. And to date, their website says they have won victories for over 230 clients. 
Their case is overturned because of better evidence. These people were literally facing death and were given relief. Death was undone because of a counter decree. Brothers and sisters, so it is with you if you are in Christ. The conviction of death has been overturned by better evidence, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. His counter decree brings relief. It cannot be rivaled. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, if these things are true, if you really have conquered death on our behalf, then please, Lord, show us what it means to live as people for whom death cannot even touch. The sting of death has been taken away. It stung you, Jesus, in our place. So then we pass through, you will not sting us, but will lead us simply into our eternal rest, into, re- into relief and rest from all of our enemies. Lord, while we continue to strive against our enemies in this world, against the spiritual forces of darkness, give us this hope to animate us every single day and help us to not be afraid. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.